This is an Area Code podcast. Hi, I'm Amy Simmons. And I'm Crispin Mayfield. And welcome to the Attached to the Invisible podcast. so excited about today's interview with J.S. Park. He is the author of The Voices We Carry, uh, which is a wonderful book. It has really influenced me, one of my favorite books on faith that I've read. Today we're talking about anxious spirituality and a few other things as well, talking about trauma, talking about the church, talking about relationship, talking about the different kinds of conditionality. And we're going to jump right in. Just want to mention that you can follow J.S. Park on Instagram. And he always, maybe this is my bias, but whenever I see him post something, I'm like, oh my gosh, that totally resonates. I'm going to share this. Uh, So if you're following me on Instagram, you probably have seen his words because I feel like I'm always just taking them and putting them out there again. When you see how he is in this interview, I hope it will motivate you to go pick up his book because he really comes across in the book in the same way, really kind and vulnerable. And you can just tell that in the way that he writes, which I just really appreciate. Without further ado, here's the interview. wanted to start with this idea of preoccupied attachment, which is where uh, we're so afraid of disconnection or abandonment that we're like always monitoring our relationships. Um, And so we're always working really hard to keep others close. And with God, that means like we're working really hard all the time to keep God close. Um, I love this, uh, this picture that um, this a couple of attachment therapists have used of like clinging onto a balloon, like a helium balloon. And just like that sort of your life is like, I have to like hold on to this. Otherwise, like if I, you know, loosen my grip a little bit, the balloon is just going to fly off into the sky. And I think that's like, some of us have, have been brought up in the church kind of believing that, right? Like if we got to be hyper vigilant all the time, which then doesn't actually like allow us to rest with God. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was curious as you know, so you, um, have a big background in ministry. So in a lot of different contexts, right? So, uh, you're a hospital chaplain, you work with, uh, homeless people as well. Mm-hmm. You have a, looks like, I think you have a history in, uh, ministry and church ministry. Um, so yeah, a lot of things. I wonder like what ways have you seen this show up, this like anxiety about like, I need to keep God close. Yeah. You know, just to jump in right into the deep end, I think I've sat with so many people now on their deathbed and at the end, often I hear two very similar needs. Uh, one is sort of peace of mind. Like, did I do okay? Mm. Um, they, they show the regrets missed opportunities, things I wish I would have done differently. If I had just done this instead of that, you know, there's a a million different scenarios that they play out. Um, But the other thing that I need, the need that I see is I wish, you know, so-and-so was here right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, My son, my mom, 
my family, that one friend where things got really weird and we didn't talk for 20 years. Mm. So there's a need for peace and there's also a need for presence. Mm. And I think to your point, being preoccupied, um, I, I think there are, there's a, a deep fear of abandonment and people leaving uh, because the reality is, is that often happens. Um, mm. You know, I think when growing up, the narrative that I believed growing up was everybody leaves. That mm. was a very persistent, unfortunate, I mean, miserable sort of splinter in my soul mm. constantly. Mm -hmm. It was just always under the surface. If you don't do well, if you don't do good, if you're not a good person, mm -hmm. uh, then everybody will leave. <clears throat> so what I see usually at the end of deathbeds is, and if I would have just pushed a little more or reconciled or reached out or something, uh, I, I could have gotten that relationship. But, you know, I, sometimes I sit with those patients and I want to almost tell them like, you did your best. You tried everything that you possibly could have. You know, and, and hear you on your deathbed and they still won't pick up the phone or they still won't answer that text. You did everything uh, that you could. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes that preoccupation is legit in that they it, it's like I almost want to call the other family member uh -huh. and be like, be like, you need to fly down here right now. You know, and, and of course, as a chaplain, I can't get that involved. I, I want to. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are other times where I just look at the, the patient and I'm like, Hey, even though they won't come or they won't answer, you know, that's okay. You still did your best. Try to find some, some peace of mind with that. I think one of the saddest things I saw, and I'm changing some of the details just to maintain mm -hmm. privacy. Yeah. Um, there was a mom who was not doing well. Mm -hmm. And she, well, when I say mom, she had a son, this patient. Mm -hmm. uh, and she asked me to call her son. Mm -hmm. And I, I said I, I, I would. And I didn't, she didn't give me any background or details or anything. She just said, can you call my son at this number? Mm. And uh, she talked about her son over and over the whole visit. I, I tried to redirect it towards how is she feeling about, you know, being sick and about her health and things like that. But then she kept coming back to her son. So I did call her son. Normally, that's not something that I, I may do unless it was the next of kin search. But I called her son and he said, you're, you're calling about my mom. And I said, yes, sir, you know, she wanted to talk with you. And he said, don't ever call me again. Hmm. He said, I don't want to talk with her. And I was so shocked hmm. and stunned. And, my, you know, my own story came up too at that mm -hmm. moment. And so I felt my own stuff around that. And I, in a very unchaplain-like response, I blurted out, dude, are you sure? Is <laughs> what I said, you know, <laughs> kind of funny, kind of sad all at the same time, right? Yeah. I said, are you sure? And it was just so unprofessional, but that's what came mm -hmm. out. Like, I just mm -hmm. couldn't believe that, you know, I, cause I gave him the details of what was happening. And he said, yeah, just don't, just don't call me again. So I hung up. So I, you know, I never really got to see the end of that story, but I, I think I saw both ends of that, this patient's preoccupation with wanting to reach out to her son. Some of that was so legit. And some of that, she was just so wrapped up and tied up in it that it was almost drowning her in a sense. Mm -hmm. So where do you draw that line between this preoccupation is unhealthy, but some of it is just a natural human need, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Wow. That is, it's really, I think such a important point that like, ideally, right. We have people that we can rely on and that stick around and the reality of life is that doesn't always happen. 
and I think it, it, I mean, one piece that I hear in that story, you know, I, I always think about what, what would it take? We're so, we're so driven to, to maintain relationship with our parents. What would it take for a relationship to get that broken? <laughs> that, yeah. that the person says that, you know, I don't want to talk to them anymore. Yeah. Cause thinking in hindsight, like I was kind of on the patient side because I'm always advocating mm-hmm. for the patient. Yeah. But there's also that, like, like you just said, there's another part of me where I got to ask, well, I, I need to advocate for this patient's son too. Like what happened in his story and what is his perspective that he just completely wants to cut off because aren't his feelings valid too? Mm-hmm. But, so, yeah. it's, so it's hard to say in, in trying to empathize with both, like what happened, how, what got, what got to that point? We don't know, you know, right. Mm-hmm. If we're to have grace, I want to have grace to hold both their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So then when it comes to the church, uh, we're often given this message of, you know, clinging to God. That's the way that I've thought of it um, in this like preoccupied way sometimes. Um, and I think sometimes kind of to your point, it, it can be so there's this lack of peace, right? Like you're saying, it's like you get so focused on that relationship that it actually kind of robs you of like being able to be at peace and being able to go on and live the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I see that Crispin, maybe in, I'll do this in 30 seconds. Cause I feel like I could <laughs> probably do a whole book on it. I see this maybe in three different layers. I think there is like a conditional community in which you say and do the right things. The church will welcome you in and keep you. Mm-hmm. And then there's conditional theology in which you believe the right things. Mm-hmm. And then you, you, you're allowed in, you're mm-hmm. allowed into the fold and you have to keep preaching those right things and, and speaking those right things. And then I think there is conditional like ground level work. So there's a kind of, you got to be out there doing the right things, the right actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and if you're not, then we, we essentially kick you out. Same thing, all mm-hmm. at the threat of being ostracized. So I guess you could say there's like a type of theology of the air where you better be saying all the right things. Then there's like a ground level. You better be doing all the right things. And then there's a communal side by side. Like, you know, you got to be acting the right way among us. And so I think all of these things cause that uh, you better or else. Mm-hmm. That's the message. You, you better or else dot, dot, dot. And I think this doesn't just happen in church, though. The church, of course, we have a... <laughs> We think we have a supernatural reason for it, right? Uh-huh. But this, yeah, this happens in all kinds of places. I mean, C.S. Lewis calls that the inner ring, you know, where we're constantly trying to get to the center of what we believe is going to bring us uh, wholeness and completion. And we'll act mm-hmm. a certain way, modify our own behavior, do all the things that we can at the expense of ourselves in order to get in the fold. Mm-hmm. And so I think the church has been notoriously uh, guilty of this. I- I'm sure I've been guilty of it, having been in ministry for seven years even if I'm not consciously preaching it, that's the subtext. You better do these things or else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you said that it, it comes at our own expense. I wonder uh, if anything comes to mind on a concrete level of what that, how you've seen that play out. Yeah. So I've been working on this uh, article that I wanted to submit. So I, I guess I'll give you a preview. I, <laughs> I was thinking of um, political and spiritual codependency. So I think more and more there are people who stay in their church, even if they don't agree with what the church is saying. 
uh, mm-hmm. and I'm speaking at their local church. Mm-hmm. So their local church may be politically, socially, and spiritually saying things that the members, they will kind of repeat and nod, but mm-hmm. internally they're like, no way. <laughs> like, I can't believe this anymore. So lately I've had that. So I've been having these weird moments where I'll sit with a church member or, or another professed Christian and I'll, they'll feel me out and I'll feel them out. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like, where totally. are you politically? Where are you spiritually? And I may throw out like a buzzword or a catchphrase or something. If they pick up, up on that, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. yeah. just a few days ago, somebody was saying something like, so the, the president finally uh, wore a mask, huh? And I was like, oh no, is this a test? <laughs> you know, like, what am I supposed to say right now? You right. Know, like, so I tried to keep it. I, I mean, because I really respect this person. And on mm-hmm. one hand, I want to be myself and, and just be like, yeah, that's right. He finally wore a mask, you know. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, there's there's a part of me that's like, I don't, is this person testing me? Is our friendship going to be over if I say that? And there's that people pleasing part of me. And then the the Eastern Asian cultural part of me where, you know, I'm, I'm feeling shame and honor. And then also the mm-hmm. everyone leaves narrative. So there's all mm-hmm. these layers, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I especially... <clears throat> feel that within the church right now mm. there's almost a codependence of mm-hmm. i like the community <clears throat> but i don't like excuse me i don't like what the community is saying anymore so what do i do mm-hmm. do i do i compromise myself to stay in yeah right and if there's like you said the supernatural aspect to it as that the church is not just a community it's not just like yacht club or whatever not that i've ever been in the yacht club but it's actually like you know they're synonymous with god and you know that all the things that come with that is i think that's really powerful and something that my current pastor has pointed out to me is that a lot of times it takes about three years before you really understand like all the dynamics in a church before you get to know the pastors, you get to know the theology, you get to know the politics, like, you know, and, but at that point after three years, or maybe it's even like less, you're so relationally invested, then it's hard to pull away. Yeah. Which I think is kind of what you're saying is that, you know, we get, we get really invested and we want to belong. Yeah. Yeah. Did you say three years, by the way? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly how long my wife and I stayed at our previous church mm-hmm. uh, before we decided to go. And then when it came to talking about the, uh, the children in cages, um, I just felt I can't compromise on this. You know, mm-hmm. it is terrible what is happening uh, mm-hmm. with that. And uh, just sort of the lack of compassion and empathy that I saw, mm-hmm. whether people agree or disagree on policy or not, for me, it's mm-hmm. about the people. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I had to go. But yeah, it took three years, I think, maybe three years of, oh, okay, I know where I'm at now. I understand. Uh-huh. So, and it was a brutal, difficult decision because by that point, you also, like you said, you, you build your roots in that community. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it's like, we got to go. Right. And so, yeah. 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 Three years. That sounds exactly right. But yeah. I think we were right at that cutoff point where it was like, gosh, we built our home here a little bit, but if we stay any longer, I don't know, we, mm-hmm. we may become so codependent. It'll be even harder to leave, you know? Right. Yeah. And it makes me just feel really sad thinking about people with what I would call attachment trauma of, the, like you said, this narrative of like, people are just going to leave, which is yeah. something that I resonate with. Um, I, if you don't mind me sharing a personal story, like my wife and I were in a uh, couple therapy a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, 
And we were talking about how I get up and make coffee every morning. <laughs> and <laughs> even though like we, in a lot of ways, like have so much security in our relationship, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to get up and make coffee for you every morning. So you won't leave me. <laughs> and she's oh. like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, you know, I love you. Like, you know, but I'm like, but that's my internal monologue, not from this relationship, but from past relationships. Right. Yeah. Of like, I have to make sure to keep you around. Yeah. And that wow. was like a really, I think it was something that was more subconscious for me, um, you know, and then kind of bringing it to the surface of like, oh, this is kind of how I operate just with this yeah. idea of like, yeah, if I don't perform the right way, if I don't behave the right way, I'm going to leave. And it makes me think about people that bring that trauma into the church, right? And the church is supposed to be the, like, the place where we get, get comfort and love and acceptance um, but then we end up in the same sort of role again of like, I need to perform a certain way. Otherwise I'm going to, you know, lose the people that I love most. Yeah. Brother, before we roll past that, that, yeah. that coffee story, man, I just got to pause and soak that in a little bit. Cause it's, I mean, I guess we both laugh, but there, there's something tragic about that. Right. I feel mm -hmm. like everybody probably has a story like that. Mm -hmm. You know, like I got to do these things for these people to stay or, or for my life to be okay. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. I just, that hit me in a different, wow. Uh -huh. Well, you know, I was thinking of, you know, um, I, I sound like I'm plugging my book. I know you, yeah. I know you read it. I'm sorry. That sounds like <laughs> yeah, crazy. no, yeah. But there's that chapter where I talk about my wife and I, um, you know, and how our marriage almost fell apart after eight months. Mm -hmm. And uh, I left out a lot of the details, but there was one thing where every time my wife and I would argue, um, not every time, but when it got really heated, I would get in my car and just leave for like an hour. Mm. And, you know, that's a really ugly thing to confess and to say. Um, and I think it was just for space and for room. But I wonder if underneath that action was, I'm leaving first in case you try to leave me first. Mm. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like a preemptive, I don't want you to leave, so I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah and looking back at that it was very very ugly but man these narratives are so controlling and they manifest in really really strange harmful ways and it's mm -hmm. it, it's almost like the other person looking in from the outside like why why are you doing this and then when you say it there's just such a haunting sadness to it you know because yeah. something is even as innocent as i want to make this coffee for you it's like oh thanks and then when you tell this the actual reason it's like holy cow yeah. yeah, there's a lot there. Anyway, I just wanted to pause and kind of take that in the emotion of that. Yeah, I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Like Sorry, that's that's a lot. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and I think you're right that this is this is a really common feeling for a lot of people, and I think that it's hard, especially especially some of the narratives in the church, um, and. And not not to throw the church under the under the bus, but sometimes there are these things of like, well, they just didn't care enough, or they didn't, you know, they're not trying hard enough, or whatever it is. And I think it really glosses over this like really deep longing that we have to belong, to feel like, you know, I can rely on this relationship, that people are gonna stay close to me, that like I can depend on them. And I think there is, I mean, codependency the so i i think that like we're we're made to be dependent on each other right in community 
codependency comes when it's like I'm giving up parts of myself in this unhealthy way or I'm doing these other things rather than just asking for what I need. Yeah. 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 You said it, man. I mean, I think I've seen codependency work out in weird ways. Like, um, I need everybody uh, to like me all the time or I feel really off. <laughs> That's a very surface level idea of codependency. Like, like, uh, Crispin, do you ever do this where, or, or know what I'm saying here? Like when I'm driving somebody, I, I turn on music in my car and then I look at the person's face to see if they approve of the music that I'm playing. And if they look like they're not jamming out, I'll change it real quick to something else. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like constantly, I'm like so wrapped up in what this person feels about my music tastes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> to the point where I, I can't even pay attention to what they're saying sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's so crazy how I'll just kind of default and revert back to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I wonder how much of that is our stuff. And then how much of that is the other person or the place like the church you were saying that creates an atmosphere of needing or, or knowing that codependent people are more likely to get wrapped up in that. Mm -hmm. Because I can tell you of people who may have targeted people who seem to be more codependent than others Mm -hmm. who would see something like, like, for example, I, I often uh, joke that, there maybe there's something in my voice or my demeanor or even maybe culturally where it seems like I'm more gullible or easily taken advantage of. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of sad in that mm. there, there's something about me where it seems like I'm maybe easier to scam mm. or more easier to uh, like I'm a clueless foreigner or something. Mm. And so <clears throat> sometimes the way people talk to me is as if I don't know anything or they can get one over on me. Or, or they can slide right past my wherewithal or something. Mm-hmm. And so I think on one hand, there's codependency in that, yes, the way I grew up and because of trauma and because of the narrative that I have of everybody leaving, I, I want to keep people. And so my mm-hmm. soul stretches to them, you know? Yeah. And there's something else where people almost like look for that. And, mm-hmm. and it's a little scary. And I still don't know 100% how to deal with that. And I don't mm-hmm. want to be paranoid where I'm looking left and right and like, who's, who's trying to get one over on me? Uh-huh. But do you know what I mean, Crispin? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I just finished uh, Chuck DeGroat's book, uh, When Narcissism Comes to Church. Um, wow. And yeah, right. And so uh, definitely uh, worth a read if that's because it, yeah. It ta- and it talks about how there, you know, there's this, sometimes they're conscious. He talks about sometimes it's very conscious, but oftentimes it's unconscious on both sides, right? You have these people that have really uh, deep needs and they're not, rather than looking at their own pain and doing their own work, they end up in these relationships where they're taking advantage of other people. Um, and it just, it just happens. I, I see it happen a lot of times in a very subconscious way. You know, you think about like people in your life, sometimes you meet someone and it's like, yeah, I, we didn't really connect. I'm not going to spend more time with them. Or it's like, Oh, I like, there's something that kind of happened between us that feels like a good connection. Um, and sometimes that good connection can be like, Oh, well I complained for an hour and they just like <laughs> looked at me and smiled. This is great. This feels really good. But if that's like your, the entirety of your relationship, 
that's not a healthy relationship. But if you're the person that's like, oh yeah, well, I, I, you know, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I'll just sit here and like listen to them complain for hours. Yeah. Then it ends up that way. And it's not, it's not necessarily targeting as much as like someone that's maybe healthier and more assertive is going to like next time around, they're just going to avoid that person. They're going to be like, I don't want to like get, I don't want to get like pushed in the corner and just, you know, have this person like talk to me for an hour. Yeah. Yeah. That's like that old joke about if there are two codependents who are dating each other, they both end up at the restaurant they don't want. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that. They can't just say like, yeah, you know, Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. That reminds me of the Cartman uh, drama triangle, you know, with persecutor, Mm -hmm. rescuer, and, uh, and quote unquote victim where, yeah, the, the relationship thrives based on their position in that triangle. Mm-hmm. And some people, like you said, it's, it's subtle. It, the, the, we don't always, we're not always aware of when it happens. And those mm-hmm. positions can shift almost moment to moment sometimes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. 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 And so very often, I think what happens as a chaplain is when I listen to someone for an hour or, or when I'm there in the, in, the, in the patient's room, some people may, and uh, this is not their fault at all, they may mistake that for friendship. Or they may mistake that for now I can call this person and text them and we can hang out together, <laughs> you know, and we had a, uh, a couple chaplains and when they first started with me, who they would visit patients and the patients because they didn't maybe have uh, attachments or maybe they didn't have healthy connections. Mm-hmm. They would want the chaplain's phone number and, they would, you know, hey, let's hang out sometime outside the hospital and those kinds of things. And even for me being as much as a people pleaser as I am, I know that that's a boundary I can't cross, <laughs> but a couple of the chaplains, they were, they were doing that. They were calling outside of the hospital and things like that. And, and then uh, we, we kind of all had to have a talk about that with the supervisor. It's like, mm-hmm. those may seem like real connections, but there's something in there that uh, there's, I guess, different roles that we each have. And if those boundaries are crossed and those roles are broken, uh, then that connection isn't real anymore. And so we had to learn kind of the unwritten rules around that. And it's hard because you, you, you see a patient and you, you feel so much empathy and sympathy for them mm-hmm. and, you, and you want to be there for them. And, you know, any person in that position is going to be in a caretaker giver set of mind. You know, it takes right, a yeah. person to be a chaplain or a counselor. Yeah. But, and I was thinking about that as a therapist. Yep. Like if, if I'm in that position, my goal is like, okay, so, you know, treatment goal, get you some friends, but in a <laughs> hospital context, it's not the same. So I could see that pull being even stronger because it's like, you know, you, they're, they're probably fairly isolated and it's not the same as therapy in the sense that you're not setting treatment goals, I'm assuming. Um, and so, yeah, I could see how that pull, especially when you have people like you've described where it's like they're cut off from family um, and pretty isolated. I could see. Yeah. That yeah. It's, we do a lot of crisis management. So here's a weird thing. Like I visited a patient once where he was in crisis. It was like ground zero of what happened to him. Mm-hmm. And so I was there in that moment and we had a great uh, conversation, great connection. We spoke for maybe an hour or two hours and then he said, come and visit me again because he was an overnight. So I, he, he, had, he was admitted. And then I saw him the next day. And whatever connection we had, his crisis was over. Mm. We could barely talk for five minutes. Uh-huh. It was the weirdest thing. So I guess this is like the opposite of that. <laughs> right. You know, where, 
whatever our roles were, whatever that moment was, we couldn't, it couldn't be recreated. It was mm-hmm. just for that moment. And we, and we kind of knew we, we didn't say it out loud, but that's how it worked. And that was okay. You know, yeah. it's almost like I'm a, uh, this is a weird way to put it, but maybe a Cinderella for the night we, we dance. And then it's kind of like, <laughs> I offer what I can. And then uh, maybe it can't be recreated because that, that I was in that room for that specific moment in time. And that's mm-hmm. what God called me for. And that's, that's the best I had to offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That is interesting to see all these, especially in such an intense environment, you see all these relational dynamics play out and kind of on steroids. I can imagine yep. that in ways that maybe take months to kind of like notice these dynamics in like friendships or other settings. Yeah. Yeah. We had to learn uh, family dynamics as well you know, mm-hmm. and uh, stepping in and managing. Because a lot of times when, when I'm visiting a patient, I am not just visiting the patient, but also all their loved ones, family members, mm-hmm. friends. And um, not when I'm not really managing the dynamics, but if I'm understanding what's happening, I can best offer uh, my comfort and perhaps a microphone to the patient amidst mm-hmm. the dynamics they're facing. Mm-hmm. So for example, there's, uh, I may have put this in the book so sorry to plug it again like there's a a, there was a patient who was really struggling with uh their dad being domineering Mm. and so how do i manage this room where at some point i advocate for the patient so that she can have a voice that she can say something even though the dad isn't and a lot of times a patient is waiting for that the relief to be able to express what they need to and by telling me in front of their dad, they're not mm-hmm. really saying it to their dad, but they are. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Does that make sense? Right. Yeah. And so, so all these dynamics where she feels like if, well, if she says it directly to her dad, what if her dad gets mad? What if he leaves? What if he, mm-hmm. you know, there's all right. those questions in there, but by saying it to me, it's almost like she's kind of wink, wink. I'm not really saying this to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. So all those dynamics are so interesting, but they're so important to learn and to know. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Family yeah. dynamics is something that I constantly am studying and learning. Um, one thing that struck me in your book is you just you talked about God in this way that God is um, just always available, always there for you, kind of on your side. Um, just this like great like you know. I guess to use biblical terms like refuge, um, you know, in times of trouble. And I just was really struck by that um, because uh, so much of uh, the God that I was taught about is, uh, you know, you do have to, you know, make coffee for him every morning. <laughs> to use that. But, you know, you, you have to like do all the things. Um, and we were emailing a bit about Romans 8 Um, and how nothing can separate us from the love of God Um, and how we wrestle through that. Because what I find in a lot of theologies and a lot of churches is, yes, that's true. Um, And then there's always this, but, you know, (laughs) but you can walk away. But um, one, one example I use often is um, focus on the family had this kids show called uh, McGee and me. 
um, and uh, the in that I grew up on in like the nineties. Um, and in the first episode, Nick, the main character, he lies um, about his neighbor, and his dad comes to talk to him, and he's like, you know, lying is bad because it hurts people, but even more important than that, lying is a sin, and sin can cut off your relationship from God. And I remember being like this you know, like really picking up on that. And it's really interesting because this is, you know, evangelicalism where we say it's by faith, not by works. Yeah. And then there's the, but, and the, but is, you know, it, your salvation is based on your relationship with God, but your relationship with God is based on your behavior. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's kind of like where it comes back to. And that looks like you said earlier, like it can be having the right theology. It can ha- be having the right behavior outside the church, the right behavior in the church. Um, but I wonder like how you've been able to cultivate this view of God that, um, it seems like those aren't really concerns that he, that's not his primary concern. His primary concern is not like, are you behaving the right way so that we can be close? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, so I have been, uh, so this is a weird way to start, but I have been accused of before of like advocating for hyper grace and mm. throwing out accountability mm. and uh, painting a picture of God that is overly romanticized. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we'll just take you back no matter what. <laughs> but my, my background, you know, being Eastern Asian, um, growing up to me, I grew up an atheist, but if I were to imagine a God back then, my idea of God would have been vengeful retribution or just an amorphous kind of entity pervasive through all things, but not personal. So I had a very impersonal view of God and sort of a cold idea of the universe. Everything is random haphazard happens for no reason. And it doesn't matter. You know, we're all heading towards uh, nothingness. And so I came from the background of not really Uh, comprehending a forgiving God that was not in my grid, so to speak. Uh, But I could understand the fire and brimstone and and all that kind of stuff. Because I thought if there is a God, there would have to be a God like that uh, because uh, humanity does not have a great track record. You know, Mm -hmm. that's that whole sort of thing, a very nihilistic, pessimistic view of God. And when I finally uh, came around to faith, I brought some of that baggage with me Mm. and my idea of God being, uh, he's vengeful, he's wrathful, he's punishing, uh, he's always watching, (laughs) making Mm -hmm. sure that you're acting right. Uh, But at some some point, I knew it wasn't, uh, quote unquote, working. Mm. And I knew that it was just causing all kinds of misery and depression. So I guess to make a long story short, I remember meeting this uh, chaplain, a prison chaplain, who he espoused to me this completely radical, awesome idea of God and the way that he ministered to ex-convicts and prisoners Mm -hmm. and just talked about basically his whole thesis was, um, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but it's Mm -hmm. God's heart will never change towards you. And it's his unchanging heart that changes you, Mm -hmm. which, which was big for me. Mm -hmm. Right. And talked about uh, grace being unconditional. And for me, this was all like I had heard it before and I, I kind of understood it on some weird level of mm-hmm. 
you know, this is this is what the church is saying, but not really. Right. Yeah. We always we pay lip service to that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But the the way he was about the way he actually saw ex-convicts and treated them and preached to them, Mm -hmm. man, it was so liberating and so freeing. And uh, he always told me, he said, you know, the ex-convicts I speak to, they already know the wrong that they've done. Mm-hmm. You know, if you preach sin to them, that's like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like, that's why I'm here. That's why I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you start talking about the grace of God and how it's not only unconditional, but counterconditional, I mean, that's the real changing truth. So does that come at risk of, you know, non-accountability or just saying, oh, it's all fine and everything's good? It can. I, I guess it could be misinterpreted if it's heard wrong or, or if it's said wrong. But the rules and stuff are very like, it's like making a brick building, but not, it's not really planting a garden, right? You can rearrange bricks any way that you want. But when you rearrange bricks in a soul, it just changes the shape. It doesn't change the nature of it. Mm-hmm. But grace to me is like, is like really planting seeds and watching growth happen. And it's the only thing that can tenderize a heart, galvanize a heart. And so for me now, I think race is the operating, it's the OS, you know, mm-hmm. it, it's just where I'm coming from. And mm-hmm. I think now dealing with people who are sick, dealing with people whose dreams have been shattered because they feel like, you know, they, they don't have able bodies anymore to be able to do the things they want. Uh, counseling members of like people of color, black communities, black families, people who are just vulnerable and wounded mm-hmm. to give them rules to say, do this and do that and do good. How does that work for them when they're living in quote unquote plan B, you know, when they're living in wreckage, when they're living in a phantom idea of what they wanted their life to be. And it's not, but when you talk about grace, like, yes, things didn't turn out the way that you want, but God's presence is still there and you're still not missing out, you know? Um, And maybe that's a consolation prize the way I'm saying it, but really God's presence I've learned is enough knowing that love can cover all our grief. You know, it, it may not cure everything, mm-hmm. but certainly love can cover over a multitude of all our pain and woundedness. Mm-hmm. And so I've been learning that more and more. It's still something that I'm learning and mm-hmm. it takes a lot of unlearning to learn that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think that makes so much sense to me. God's presence being so important um, because I'm just thinking about like, you know, uh, empathy, right. And how, really it's not like we can't fix things for other people yeah but when we can be with them in their pain it really lightens the load in a lot of ways yeah like earlier when i was saying about the deathbed those two needs about Mm -hmm. i need peace for what i've done and i want a presence who's always here Mm -hmm. i mean that's what that's what god offers you know Mm -hmm. from beginning to end and i think i've seen that that's what what people need and to say anything else outside of that is is just causing really uh, even more desperation, even more anxiety. So for me as a chaplain, whether by just being there mm-hmm. or by being a sounding board or mm-hmm. even speaking, speaking uh, encouraging words to them or, or grace to them, mm-hmm. I'm somehow trying to offer a reflection of what God is. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. here's peace and here's presence. Yeah. And that's, if that's what we need at the end, I think that's what we need always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it really strikes me, the ministry that you're in. I think um, a lot of chaplains talk about God's presence, I would hope, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and I, like I mentioned, my father-in-law is a hospice chaplain. Um, yeah. And, you know, bringing that 
comfort in, in speaking of that comfort. And yet um, in the church, we talk a lot about distance. We talk about being close to God or being far from God. Um, and even talk about like, you know, praying things like God, keep us close to you this week. Um, and it really strikes me the difference there, the difference of the God that you're talking about is this God that is always with us. But a lot of times we end up talking about God as though he's, we're far from him sometimes and we're close other times. Usually, I mean, it's a euphemism for our behavior. Yeah. 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 You know, my supervisor, she's awesome uh, over at the homeless shelter where I work. Um, she also did chaplaincy and, and she's a reverend now. She, in her prayers, always says, um, nothing can separate us from your love. She said she ends every prayer that way. How, how big is that and how transformative is that for us to know that there is a presence who never leaves us? Um, I've been trying to be in the habit of saying, you know, we need the social distances for our good, but it's hard. But with God, there is no social or physical or spiritual distance. You know, God meets us exactly where we are. I mean, there's so many truths, like so many different comforts in knowing mm-hmm. that God can't ever leave us. Mm-hmm. And it's so it's so counterintuitive to what mm-hmm. we're used to. You know, this yeah. conditional uh, theology that we have, this conditional ladder that we're all taught to climb. And that's in both church culture and pop culture. Mm-hmm. We're, we're taught to meet all these conditions. And I, I wonder if people who have to go back to your very first thing, that preoccupation, mm-hmm. um, preoccupied attachment, you know, where does that come from? I wonder, I, I'm guessing that comes from trauma of people abandoning us so we feel like we have to keep them all the time right Mm -hmm. i wonder if your preoccupied attachment would be greatly reduced or even out altogether if the way we treated people was not based on conditions Mm -hmm. you know like we didn't cause them to have a preoccupation with attachment if that Mm -hmm. makes sense you know and i think if we had that view of god's presence and our own presence like hey no matter what no matter what I'm here. I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. You know, I may need boundaries sometimes because I'm human, <laughs> but right, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not leaving. Uh-huh. I wonder if preoccupation attachment would even be a thing anymore, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, it seems like one of the only ways that we've learned to talk about behavior is through shame. And shame obviously is a big word and a big concept, but I think particularly shame and thinking in, in a Eastern Asian context, if I'm getting this right. I spent some time in China uh, when I was a missionary kid for five years. Wow. Wow. Shame is not necessarily always feeling, you know, in the U.S. we talk about this feeling, feeling bad about yourself. Um, But shame also can mean you're going to be ostracized from the community based on your behavior. Yeah. And that's kind of the only way that we know sometimes to talk about behavior, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, like, you know, do this, do that, where else? And really what we need is we need a community that, that is like, yeah, we're, you know, we're here no matter what. There's, there's nothing that can break this bond. And then also this other conversation about how are we going to live together? How's, what's, what does community look like? What do boundaries look like? Um, at what point, you know, sometimes there are times where there's, there's a, times of separation, um, but that doesn't mean the end of the relationship. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that's something that we don't have much language for culturally or in the church. How do we talk about 
especially in uh, in Protestantism where we just love to like split off all the time, right? I'll just go yeah. start my own thing, start <laughs> another denomination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, real quick on shame, I, I wonder, so maybe this is the Eastern Asian part of me speaking, I wonder if shame, some of it points to like, some of it may be legitimate, not to necessarily shaming a pers- the person, mm-hmm. but even now what we're seeing with people actually being held accountable and called out for mm-hmm. you know, racism, xenophobia, all those things, yeah. some of that shame may be objectively pointing to something that needs to change, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's sort of the methodology of shame, which I think is unhealthy, which is we're going to completely cut this person off with no avenue of restoration whatsoever. Mm-hmm. That for me is shame in a way that is completely toxic and unhelpful. Mm-hmm. And so again, I, I wonder if I'm giving too much credit to shame, but just, <laughs> just the idea of it, I think, I don't want to dismiss it completely, mm-hmm. you know, because at least in my culture, which I'm, I'm trying to un- get back to the roots of, like mm-hmm. honor for me is a pretty big deal and still is. I, I used to kind of laugh at it and scoff at it, but looking at it now, you know, honor being, uh, what we say and what we do and who we are is in alignment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is a lot of beauty around honor uh, of what we say, what we do and who we are is being aligned and you can rely on me, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the, the underbelly of that is, you know, deep, deep shame, not good shame either. Uh-huh. Uh, but seeing now a lot of the corruption that's happening and just a lot of the ugliness you know, mm-hmm. both in social media and in real life. I, I, I wonder how shame could be used or talked about or managed in a way where it's like, this is pointing to something real and mm-hmm. we need to be held accountable, not to shame each other, but to say objectively, this is not okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, totally. And it's not a concept I'm super familiar with, but I think of Dr. King talked about this idea of beloved community where everyone's welcome. Um, and obviously you can't like be a white supremacist and also join Dr. King's beloved community, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. And so like, I think there is that sense of like invitation and welcome. Um, and, and, and there is going to need to be some things that we lay down in order to enter into that, I think. And I think that's a lot of what Jesus was getting at. A lot of times we look at Jesus as like kind of laying these conditions, but he's, I think in a lot of ways saying like, you just, you just literally can't experience the kingdom of God when you have this in your life. I'm not saying I'm not letting you into the kingdom, but you know, with a rich young ruler, it's like, yeah, you're, you know, it's, it's not that you're not allowed in until you do this thing. It's more just like the, the principles of it and the logic of it is, you know, you, you're not going to experience uh, life in this way when you have all these riches. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. And I think, I think the limitation of my grace, maybe this is a human limit, I'm not sure, but for me, where my grace sort of is limited is for those who seem to lack grace for others. Mm-hmm. That's what I have to say. I, I don't know if we can hang anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. And, and I guess where I see Jesus in that is with the Pharisees, like mm-hmm. he was pretty hard on them. And uh-huh. I, and my, my speculation is that he saw such a lack of grace in them that that's where his grace sort of 
I don't know if it was limit. I don't know if limit is the right word, but that's where accountability and justice had to step in, you know, as part of grace. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And you think like they, they, when we think about sinners, the, you know, the sinners were people that were not ritually cleansed in the temple. Yeah. So, the Pharisees could have at any time, I'm guessing, they could have gone and eaten with the sinners. Yeah. Right? Jesus isn't saying, like, you're locked out. But it was because of their own concept of righteousness and religiosity that prevented them from joining. It wasn't yeah. Jesus that was preventing them from joining. Wow. Yeah. That's that's good. Yeah. Which I think is kind of good. Yeah. But what we end up doing is we have this we have this picture of a God that puts up all these walls and gates and, and I look, it's more like the door is wide open. Um, but in order for you to step through the door, sometimes that requires some, some change and willingness to, to willingness to change. Yeah. You know, and I, and I bet <clears throat> all this conditional stuff, that theology, all the conditional, especially around church, I, I, that has to stem from, See, this is my optimistic take, is that that has to stem from fear of people getting away with something, you know, fear of letting people off the hook, fear of you're, you're yeah, you're going to hurt me. Uh, so we got to put all these rules in place in order for you uh, not to get away with these things. And I, I, so on one hand, it, it's like, Maybe it's flexing superiority and I'm putting these rules on you because I want to feel powerful and it's an ego boost for me, right? Mm. And I'm, I'm building this insider's club because it makes me feel strong. But then there's this other part of me that, that empathizes almost. And it's like, I'm building this club to feel strong because I've always felt so weak, because mm. I've always felt so scared. Mm -hmm. And so I think sometimes narcissism is just narcissism, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but then other times I wonder if narcissism is fear of feeling insignificant fear of feeling like things are out of control. That's why I need these rules. That's why I need this club. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes when I look at churches with so many conditions or people who act very conditionally, there's a part of me that just looks at that and thinks, man, what a jerk, you know, or <laughs> this church, why, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah. And again, like you said, not to throw the church under the bus, but sometimes they're the ones driving that bus, you know? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. But, but then there's that other part of me that's like, gosh, I just, I see fear in their eyes. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's a, a deep fear that I'm just, I'm out of, I'm not having the control that I want. So, so there's an empathy there where it's almost like, you know, if they got the attachment they wanted, if they got the healthy connections they needed, maybe there wouldn't be so many conditions trying to keep it all together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me think about a church that I went to several years ago. I was trying to do, um, uh, start a ministry for like uh, porn addiction recovery. Um, mm -hmm. And we were going to do the Genesis process. And uh, I met with the pastors and they said, we looked over the curriculum, but it doesn't talk in a, about sin enough. And I was like, well, you have like a group of men that are part of a church that are coming to a group to talk about their porn addiction. I don't think that we really need to like belabor the like, you're so sinful part, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, man. But, yeah. and the other thing that comes to mind, um, thinking about power and narcissism and boundaries, um, because, you know, we're also at, like right now I'm following what's going on in Menlo at Menlo Park Church uh, with the Ortbergs. Um, 
and we're looking at like how our power dynamics playing out. And I think um, one thing that I've used to sort of guide boundaries is are the boundaries uh, ostracizing people that are already ostracized um, or are they holding people accountable that already hold power? So, you know, if it's like, if, so if we're thinking about someone, like I think about um, drug addiction, for example, there's this huge correlation of trauma and drug addiction, right? And so if it's like, if you're not letting people into your church, not that people explicitly do this often, but if it's like, you know, here's someone that's already been through a lot of trauma and you're putting them, you know, you're not letting them into the community because of their behavior, you know, behaviors of addiction right that's really different than like the elder who holds a lot of power in our society and we're going to put a boundary on him because he's not treating people um in the church well right so are we i think it's important to put boundaries around people that are mistreating the vulnerable but so often our boundaries actually just push out the vulnerable people in our community yeah yeah oh man so hearing you say that it reminds me of i I think this is all about power dynamics right Uh uh-huh yeah like who's holding the power and then who is vulnerable and doesn't have power and therefore the boundaries are not really boundaries in that case but Mm -hmm. it is ostracizing that person and kicking them out right uh, conditionally right so i think some people may abuse the notion of boundaries but they're the ones in power able to lock the door from the inside and kicking them out Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean like so in chaplaincy for example uh when i go into a patient's room and i and i talk with them i'm very very careful about the way i bring up any kind of religion or theology Mm -hmm. because they're the ones in the bed and they're sick and they're they're some sort of in a you know a laying down position usually and i'm sitting in a chair or even standing up they may see me as a religious authority figure that they need to speak religiously around mm-hmm. in order to feel safe with me because maybe mm-hmm. that's what they think like oh this is a holy figure <laughs> i better act right and speak right, right. i want to be right with god and i want to be you know look good in front and my goal immediately is to help disarm that tension mm-hmm. and help them to feel like they can say whatever they want around me mm-hmm. um, and so i i try to set I, so i don't know if i'm talking about boundaries at this point but as far as power dynamics go, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that I'm not holding any sort of quote unquote supernatural or divine order over them or, or mm-hmm. they're seeing the Bible as a, as a hammer or anything like that, that they see me as a person that's like, I am the gatekeeper between you and heaven. I don't ever want them to feel that. And so right. I do a lot of work in the beginning to help them feel comfortable to, you know, chaplains are called a non-anxious, non-judgmental comforting presence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's essentially what we are. Mm-hmm. And so this patient at any time they can ask me to leave at any time they can say, I don't want to talk about that is mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about God. I don't want to talk about theology or even sometimes when they, they see a chaplain, they'll be like, mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, do you have bad news? You know, cause uh-huh. seeing a chaplain <laughs> is very yeah. alarming. Right. right. So almost at the homeless shelter, some people may feel like, Oh, here's the chaplain walking around his talk with us. If I don't say that I believe uh, Jesus or something, I won't get services, I won't get food and, and shelter. And I don't ever want them to think that. Mm-hmm. How do I disarm them of that of that notion? And unfortunately, they have experienced religious and spiritual abuse, which is why they might think that. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. this, this all comes down to who's got the authority. And we may not think so, uh, 
but pastors, religious figures, we are seen in some ways as authoritative figures holding some kind of power over people, even if we don't think that. Mm-hmm. And, and how can we very carefully use that power, not against ever, but for? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's so important and ties back to that. Like if people are preoccupied, right, do I belong here? Am I going to lose? They're watching the pastor's face, right? Are we okay? Yep. Um, yeah. And especially if you, I mean, I think there's, uh, I, I am someone that also I'm like an automatic brown noser. Like I will just, I just have a radar for like, who's the authority and making sure that like, we're okay. Yeah. And that doesn't actually make for a very like authentic relationship, which is, yeah. so I, I appreciate I'm really glad to hear that. Like you take that posture with people. Cause I think it's so important. So, yeah. 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 Well, thanks so much for taking some time to talk about these things. Um, yeah. It's one of the reasons that I started this podcast. I'm like, what if I just did a podcast where I got to talk about attachment and psychology and trauma and spirituality with people. Um, yeah. And so I really appreciate your, the things that you've said today. And um, I'm going to mention it multiple times in the episode, but uh, your book is really great. Um, and I'm really excited that it's out there in the world. Um, and um, what, where can people, uh, find you if they want to follow you on social media things? Oh man, I'm, I am, uh, JS Park on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all the various social media, all the evil social media. <laughs> My mother-in-law, uh, she loves your Instagram feed. She told me that the other day I was talking about reading your book and she's like, Oh, I, fo- I follow him on Instagram and I loves oh. what he has to say so there you go i got got an endorsement from my mother-in-law oh, as well. awesome. <laughs> yeah that's the best endorsement i've gotten <laughs> awesome <laughs> great well thanks so much and uh have a good day all right chris we appreciate you thank okay, you so much This is an Area Code podcast.